0: Good morning. Yeah, greet your neighbor. I'm glad to be here today with you as we're continuing on in our series entitled Living in Babylon. I just want to thank you for being here today. If you're watching online, thank you for catching service with us. And if we got people hanging out in the cafe, so there's just people everywhere today. And so I'm excited to be here uh, in week number three of Living in Babylon. Have you ever been in a hostage situation? I want you to think about it for a moment. Imagine you're there at church and you're having a Sunday night gospel sing. Do you guys remember Sunday night gospel sings? Yeah. And somebody got up there and got a microphone and they couldn't sing. Remember that? And they started singing. And the song went for like eighteen minutes, and you're like, Lord, we need the rapture to happen now because we feel like we're in a hostage situation. You guys aren't deep down inside, I know you're giggling about that because you've been there. You've been in some testimony services that you've been sitting there and you're like, My goodness, they've told their life story two times and we're not ever we're gonna get out of here. I want to go eat Mazios after Sunday. Has anybody ever done that besides just me? Come on. You guys are, you're sitting there looking at it. I can tell in your eyes that you're feeling it, but you don't want to say amen because you don't want to get struck by lightning, right? (laughs) There are are moments when we get into hostage situations where we feel like we're going to be stuck here forever. Some family dinners that you feel like you're never. A family reunion is a hostage situation, amen? Like, why get together and have a family reunion? You haven't seen these people in four years. You're not going to see them for another four years. Let's go sit somewhere with them for four. I hate family reunions, if you can't tell, because it's like a hostage situation where you're stuck and you can't get out of there. Spiritually speaking, that's what our life is like. It's a hostage situation where we're stuck in Babylon. If you were here two weeks ago, we started this concept, this this series, where we're looking at the principles that we as Christians are spiritual aliens living in a foreign land. Our true citizenship is in heaven. However, we have to live our lifespan in a sinful culture, a lot like how the exiles in the Old Testament had to live in Babylon. We started looking at how the exiles, 500 years before Jesus walked on this earth, were captured in their homeland of Israel, and they were taken by the wicked kingdom of the Babylonians. We started talking about the, the lives of Daniel and the three Hebrew boys and Esther and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so on and so on, there's, there's so many different people in the Old Testament that were connected to this exile, and they were exiles living in Babylon. And we talked about the Christ honor and characteristics that we had to have if we're going to survive in Babylon. We have to have a tuned spirit. We have to have a certain skill set. We have to have resolved hearts to the honor of the Lord and have contrasting convictions to the values of this world. Now, last week, Miss Annie Perkins did an amazing job. Let's give her a hand if you were here. She did an amazing job telling us and instructing us and helping us understand how we can raise our kids in a culture that is saturated by Babylon idealistic uh, viewpoints, if you will. And the process that's required for us to raise our kids in a Christ honoring way. Now today we're going to continue to look into the world of the exiles, and here's the, the big idea of this message just to kind of set it up for us. As Christians, we have to practice vocational discipleship in the world. Our passage today is going to be in Jeremiah chapter number 29, and to set this passage up for you, the Babylonian empire has already taken a lot of captives back to Babylon, but there were still some people living in Jerusalem during this time, and the prophet Jeremiah was one of those people. And Jeremiah as a prophet, was in instructed by the Lord to write a letter to the exiles in Babylon, and God wanted to give them a message. And if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter number 29, we're going to turn there, Jeremiah 29, and we're going to start reading in verse number 4. Here's what the Bible says. Jeremiah 29, starting verse number four. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you do not listen to the dreams that they have dreams, for it is a lie. They are, not, they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on my name and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you you declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you out into exile. Now what in the world is going on in this passage? Let's dive into it a little bit. As I said, Jeremiah was a prophet assigned by the Lord to the nation of Israel right before the exile. And God told him to warn the people because of their sins that they were going to be sent into exile for 70 years. That's really important. Turn to your neighbor and say 70 years. He told them that they would be there for 70 years. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Like I said, the the Babylonians came in. They took a, a group of people from Judah, from Jerusalem, back to Babylon. And now we're picking up in chapter number 29. They have been living in exile for a few years. And even though God told them that they were going to be there for 70 years, they're starting to get antsy. And as a result, there was a group of people who called themselves, quote unquote, prophets. And as we just read in this passage, they were not prophets from the Lord. God did not send them. They were men speaking their own thoughts and their own minds, and they were politically motivated, telling the people that the exile was only going to last for a couple of years. Now, we're going to dive into this a little bit more later on in our passage. But what you need to know right now is that God is frustrated, if you will, with the people, because he told them that this is going to be a seventy-year, seventy-year exile. But now they're getting antsy, and they're they're starting to get stagnant in their faith and their walk with him. And so God is correcting this lie, and He told Jeremiah to write a letter to the leadership in exile, telling them to settle down. Now the substance of this letter is really important for us. We see that God is. And he has a sovereign plan for the people in this exile. So as a result, God is telling the exiles to make a home in Babylon. He says, I need you to settle down into the place in which I have planted you. Now, this would have been appalling for the Israelites to hear in this moment. God, you want me to settle here in Babylon? I'm a Jew. I'm a I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Judah. I should be back at home the promised land you gave me. You want me to make a home here in this sinful pagan place? God, why would you want me to do that? Well, we see from this passage that making a home was the plan that God had for the exiles because in making a home there, they were preserving a remnant of believers. They were shining the light into the dark culture and they were trying to get the nation of Babylon to repent. Now, why should we care about this 2,500 years later after the fact here in J America on this day? And I believe it's this, because God was commanding the exiles to make a home. So too, God is calling believers today in this culture, in this city, in this county to make a home in our modern day Babylon. Turn to your neighbor and say, we have to make a home here. You see, the New Testament calls us aliens because our citizenship is in heaven. However, just as our citizenship is in heaven, that doesn't mean that God does not desire us to have a purpose here on earth. You have to understand that when God preserves a remnant and you are a remnant of believers, when God preserves us, he reserves us to paint a picture of the gospel and shine a light into this dark and broken world. We are called to be a contrast to the culture so that people can see who Jesus is and hopefully that this culture will repent and turn to God. In other words, God has a mission for you and for me to be here today. And you cannot fulfill your mission here unless you make a home here. You cannot fulfill your mission that God has for you in Delaware County unless you live your life here. You have to make a home where God has planted you. God has a mission for you to be his light, to be his remnant. As believers... We are going to. We are called to vocational discipleship. And that's the second time I've used that term. What does that mean? Well, I read that term in a book a while back, and it just really stuck out to me when this writer was talking about vocational discipleship. If you're interested in the book, you can come see me afterwards. I'll tell you about it. But it was fascinating because he was saying that a lot of Christians, when they get saved, that they try to remove themselves so much that they, they separate their life and compartmentalize it into two things. They have the sacred and the secular. Their sacred life is what happens on Sunday. Wednesdays, it's when they were with their church, and they focus all their Christianity over here, and then they have the, the secular life, which they're going to work, and it's not necessarily sinful when I'm saying secular, but they just go through, to work, they go through the motions, and they separate that. All their serving that they do, they do it in church with Christian people, and then they're just using the world, surviving until someday they get to go to heaven. And what this writer was making, the argument is this, that if we're going to make a difference in the world, then we have to have vocational discipleship. Meaning, we don't compartmentalize our lives into the sacred and the secular, but rather we see ourselves as missionaries wherever God has planted us, that we are called to use whatever skills, whatever profession, whatever talent we have to shine Jesus into every single sphere that we're in. We, we merge the two so that our sacred life spills over into the secular life. We see this in the New Testament because God called people of all different backgrounds and told them to be witnesses. He called tax collectors, and He called fishermen, and He called tent makers. And what did He tell them to do when He called them? He said, go make disciples. Well, they didn't quit their jobs and become professional Christians. Rather, they took their faith and they integrated it into whatever lifestyle that they were living. They were showing people who Jesus was when they were casting the net. They were telling who people who Jesus was when they were laying stones. They were telling people who Jesus was as they were traveling through life. And that is our calling as vocational disciples, is to work within our work life, our family, and our hobbies to reach the lost around us. The responsibility for believers is to take our calling serious and ask the question. How can I shine Jesus when I'm at my kids soccer games? How can I shine Jesus in my workplace? How can I shine Jesus with my hunting buddies? How can I shine Jesus in everywhere that I go? If God has planted me here to build a home, then what is it that I can do in this place to bring Him glory? And I believe Jeremiah 29 gives us some insights into how to practically live our vocational discipleship. And there's five points I want to show you. I'm going to go through these very quickly this morning. And I hope that as we take these and we learn from them that we will become a remnant in this place so that we can make a difference where God has planted us. And the first thing I want you to see is this. While living in Babylon, we have to use the skills that God has given us to shine the light of the gospel. If you go back and you read just a few verses before, this, and I didn't read it because there's a bunch of names that I'm going to butcher anyways, you'll see that Jeremiah was writing to the leadership uh, there in Babylon. And there he writes to the king, and there he writes to the queen, and he writes to the eunuchs, and he writes to the craftsmen, and he writes to the metal workers. He, they list all these different people. You had, you had royalty all the way down to laborers whom God was communicating to. And we, as we said a couple of weeks ago, what happened a lot of times is that whenever a country invaded a another. They took their best and their brightest back to their homeland so they can indoctrinate them with their culture to send them back so that they could be a voice for the conquering kingdom. So these exiles were the t- very talented. They were very gifted and they were very skilled people. And what God was calling these people to do was to seek the welfare of their city where they were at and to contribute to society. It's very interesting to me that God is writing, and He mentions two groups of people specifically. He mentions, he mentions craftsmen and metal workers, and He tells them to build houses and plant vineyards. Make that connection. He's saying, use the skills that are in your life to better the city in which I have planted you. We see this very clearly with Daniel's life. When you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel was an exile living in Babylon, and God had placed inside of him a gift to interpret dreams and visions. And many times God used Daniel to explain to the king what the king was facing to interpret his dreams that he was having. And here's what we need to see. God has deposited gifts and skills into your life, and God has deposited both natural skills, things that you're naturally good at, and spiritual gifts into your life life, and we need to use those gifts to bless every single person around us. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, you got something to offer. When you start looking around in this church, you see a wide variety of people. You see a wide variety of skill sets. Some of you have a very mechanical mind. You can fix anything you touch. Some of you are people you have teaching skills. You know how to instruct and to encourage Some of you have a a serving mindset. You know how to host and make people feel comfortable. Some of you have a strong work ethic, and you know how never to quit and get things done. We need to use these gifts that are placed inside of us as a gospel tool to leverage an outcome for the kingdom. There's not just natural gifts inside of your life. There are also spiritual gifts inside of your life. God has placed some of you with supernatural wisdom. He has given you the spiritual gift of wisdom. Some of you, you have a, every time you pray, it seems like God listens. Knox man, I think God has given Knox the gift of faith. Every time he prays, stuff happens. So, you know, when he prays for things, always makes me nervous when he starts praying, because I don't know what he's about to ask for. And I think God listens to him more than he listens to me. (laughs) Some people, you have a supernatural ability to help counsel others and give guidance. Here's the bottom line. In my experience, Some of the most talented, intelligent, and gifted people are within a local church. And we have to get very good at figuring out how to use our gifts and the skills that God has placed inside of us outside of the walls of this church and in the community. If God has given you the gift of wisdom, trust me, there is a culture that needs a spiritual gift of wisdom in it right now. If God has given you the gift of serving, there are countless opportunities in this county to serve. We need to figure out what God has given us the gift and we need to use it. I want to challenge you with a thought. How can you use your giftings, both natural and spiritual outside the walls to make a difference for the kingdom? Show the light of the gospel, show people Jesus. What we see from the example of the exiles is that they were using their gifts in the place that God called them to live. And they were a blessing to every single one of them around them. They were to seek the welfare of the city. And here's what I believe. I believe that as people, of God that we should be contributing so much in society that we become invaluable to our communities, our workplaces, and our friends. Like if we were gone tomorrow, will people notice? The answer should be yes, because we are using the deposit that God has placed inside of our lives and we're making a difference. Now here's the warning. The warning is obvious. God, the culture, the things that God placed inside of our hearts, the the culture will always try to corrupt. I mean, this is very easy to pick on this group of people, but you see it so easily in the music realm, right? In the, in the arts. You, you see people are so talented, they're so creative, and they're using their gifts that God's placed inside them for just the most vile, vulgar things ever. But, you know, God still gave them the ability to sing. God still created them with that mind. They are just allowed their gifts to be corrupt. And we have to be careful of the same things because what can happen in our own life is we can start to look at our own skill and our own talent that God has placed in our life and we can start using it for our own advantages instead of for kingdom advantages. Satan's going to try to trick us and tempt us into using the things that God has deposited for our own gain. Satan even tried to do this to Jesus. Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread and throw himself off the temple. And so you have to be careful not to use your gifting for your own purpose, but rather use your gifting and leverage it for the kingdom. So if you have a ferocious work ethic and you are super smart and you learn how to make $400,000 a year and you never give a dollar to the poor, eh, you know what I mean? You might want to think about that just a little bit. Lord, how can I use the gifts and the skills you have placed inside of my life to be a representative to the community, to my friends, to my workplace? And make no mistake about it, every single one of you has a gift. Second thing I want to show you is this. While living in Babylon, we need to be fruitful citizens to society. I love what God told the people. He said in this passage, "Build homes, plant crops." In other words, work hard, supply for yourself, and do be done to be a faithful contributor to society. Now, this would have been very difficult for the people who to hear because they wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Building houses and planting crops would have been an omission that they were going to be in Babylon for a while. They weren't going anywhere. They had to settle down a little bit, and they did not want to do that. However, God was trying to get them to contribute to their own needs. And this lesson transcends even to the New Testament and us today. There are so many commandments in Scripture about working hard to meet the needs for oneself and one's family and to be fruitful and productive. What we have to understand is this, is that God did not create any of us to be lazy. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden before sin ever happened, God told Adam to do what? Work the ground. So work is a part of the character and the nature in which God created us to be. And this reflects his character and his nature because God is always working. Bible makes that clear. God is never sitting there twiddling his thumbs saying, I don't know what to do next. God always finds something to do. I think God put a double portion of this in my dad's life when, we, when I was growing up. My dad was a guy, I swear, I don't think we ever. And one Sunday morning or Saturday morning, he was up with some chores to do around the house. And if dad was going to be up, then I was going to be up helping dad, right? And I'm thankful for that. Why? Because it instilled a work ethic inside of my life. And that is so important for all of us. And it's a commandment from God. He tells us to be productive. Now, the problem was when God created Adam and then Adam sinned, what was the judgment and the punishment that Adam faced? God said, now thorns and thistles are going to come from the ground by your work. He said, by the sweat of your brow, the crops are going to come. And what this shows us is that that creating excellence and contributing to society is always going to be hard work, and it's always going to be coming by the sweat of our brow. However, when we work hard with excellence and create with excellence and contribute to the needs of society, we're painting a picture of how spirit-empowered Christians are able to do work for the Lord, and the world needs that right now more than ever. We need to be like the Jews living in Babylon. We need to have, we might be repulsed. Pulsed by what's happening in society. However, we cannot stop being a witness to society and we cannot influence society or the culture when we're not contributing to the needs of the culture. In short, if you're a drain on the culture, they're never going to listen to what you have to say. We have to be the hardest workers. We have to show up to our job before everybody else. We have to stay five minutes later than everybody else leaves. We have to do everything with excellence. We have to do the right thing at the right time, the right way. We have to contribute to the needs of the place around us. As you approach your business life, let it be said to the Christians of JFA, they are the hardest workers. They pay the bill all the time, and they treat people with honesty. And what a witness to the church if we could do that. The third thing I want to show you is while living in Babylon, our families have to be our priority. God said to the people to marry and let their kids marry, have babies, increase. Do not decrease is what God told the people. And what this shows us is we have to make our families a priority. Having a godly family has to be the desire of our hearts. And to raise kids to honor the Lord has to be a desire of our hearts. How do we do that? Well, if you want to know, go back and listen to Annie's sermon last week. She tells us a lot of what to do. But I'm not gonna so I'm not gonna rehash too much of this. But here's what I do want to show you is this, is that we have to live in such a way where we are the loudest voices in our kids' life so that they hear us louder than they hear the culture. And I don't know if you've paid attention a lot lately, but the culture is yelling into the kids of our ears about twenty-three hours a day. They wake up in the middle of the night, they check their phones, and they sleep right there. And it's just a constant inundation of filth and immorality funneling into their life. And if we have any hope of making our families a priority, then we have to be the loudest, most encouraging, most life-giving voices in the ears of our children. Not just our children, but our friends as children. One thing I love about this church is how so many of the men and women in this church have just championed my son. They encourage him, and they teach him, and they instruct Him and let me tell you, this this world is messed up, and I can use all the help that I can get, and you can use all the help you can get. This is why gathering together with a community of believers is so important because we have to have a a contrasting voice into the life of our kids if they're gonna have any hope, any hope of having a positive spiritual witness in their life. It's never too late to start investing in your kids. It's never too late to start investing in their in their spiritual walk. Parenting is ultimately discipleship, as Annie said last week. And I want to challenge you, disciple your kids. If you're going to be in Babylon and we're all here and God's saying to make our families a priority, how do you do that? I want to give you just here's a couple of just real practical things. We're reading the Bible together as believers going through the New Testament. Just take a little bit of that before your kids go to bed at night. Something stuck out to you that morning and just read it to them. You know, it says, hey, hey, kids, we're in Mark's or excuse me, Matthew seven today. And it says that, you know, that the greatest commandment is to love others the way you love yourself. So if you want to treat other people the way you want to be treated, that is living out the golden rule. That's a real simple way to encourage your kids. Say a prayer with them on the way to school. Say a prayer with them before they go down and lay down for the night. Whatever you can to invoke spiritual discipline in their life. Fourth, while living in Babylon, we need to pray for the city. God told the people to seek the welfare of the city and to pray on behalf of the city to the Lord. Again, this sounds really easy to do until you put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. They were to pray for their captors. Imagine being kidnapped, and while you're in chains shackled up, you are praying for the welfare of the ones who took you. Right now, that's a reality for some Ukrainian believers. I guarantee you there's a church right now that's praying for the Russians. In Ukraine. Why? Because that's what Christians do. They pray for those who persecute them and oppress them. And this is what the church is calling us. Excuse me. This is what the Lord is calling the church to do. Unfortunately, too often we desire the downfall of our leaders. We pray or desire that God will remove them more than we pray that God will bless them. However, God makes a very obvious statement. He says that you're tethered to this culture. So their welfare is your welfare. So if we're constantly desiring the downfall of our leadership, guess who goes down with them? We do. So we should pray for the welfare of those who God has allowed to be in authority over us. The Israelites lost everything they deemed necessary. They lost their homeland. They lost their military. They lost their temple. They lost their king. God could have used this time any other way, but this is how he chose to do it. And he says, I'm calling you while you're here. I know you've lost everything that you deem important, but I'm calling you to be a spiritual light and to be a voice in church. We have to do the same thing. We have to understand that there is power within our prayer life. There's power within the words that we pray. We've been going through the book of, Revelation on Wednesday night. And one of the most fascinating things about that book is that we see that our prayers, the prayers of the believers are always before God. It's referenced several times in the book of Revelation that God is there and He collects the prayers of the saints. Sometimes we think when we're praying, we're just praying into the air. But our prayers go before God and they're a powerful tool. Now the question you might ask is, well, what do I pray over this county? I'll tell you something. I pray over them all the time. Luke chapter four, verse 16 it's talking of Jesus. And it says this, and he speaking of Jesus came to Nazareth where he was brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the skull, of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled it. And he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, man, there are some spiritually poor people in our county that need good news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. How many people do you know in your sphere of influence that are just in complete bondage and captivity to anxiety, depression, drugs, addiction of some sort? Recovery of the sight of the blind. How many of you know people who are spiritually blind to the truth that's around them? To set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim that you're at the Lord's favor. You want to know something? That you can pray over your county over your city, over your family, over your workplace, pray that. Pray that over them. God, come, bring liberty, open up eyes, set people free. Fifth and final, I want to close with this if the worship team will come back. While living in Babylon, we need to have some spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. Now God says something very interesting in this passage. He said, don't listen to the liars the so-called prophets among you. Now, this is real interesting. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that we'd address this later on, and we are now at that point. Now, this is a super confusing thing because if you read through the book of Jeremiah, particularly this section of Jeremiah, there's several references where God says, Your prophets aren't they're not telling you the truth, they're lying to you. What in the world is going on here? Well, if you read in the previous two passages, excuse me, two chapters, and you read the rest of this chapter. What you're going to see is that there was a group of people who called themselves prophets who were politically motivated, and they were just saying anything that they wanted. Whatever, whatever was in their heart, they were just speaking out. And it would appear, according to verse 21 and 22, that some of these prophets had actually been tied and were participating and trying to overthrow the Babylonian kingdom, and they were killed in the process. And God is saying, ignore them because they're not speaking my word. Now, I'm gonna be super blunt and transparent. With the advent of social media, we have a lot of people who have a platform that they have not earned, and they're saying anything that comes to their mind. And they are saying these words as thus saith the Lord. And we've seen this over this last two years where there's a lot of people who say God's gonna do X, Y, and Z, and then X, Y, and Z doesn't happen. This is a real problem in the church. But it's not a new problem. It's been a problem that's been around for 2,500 years where people want to speak on behalf of God when God has not told them to speak. Some people try to use God's name to try and hurry God's plan. However, the Lord's never going to be hurried in His divine plan. He has plans for His people, and they're going to happen in His course. So we, as believers, if we're in Babylon, have to develop some spiritual discernment. Just because someone utters the words, thus saith the Lord, does not mean that the Lord has doth said. We want to be careful. We want to be respectful. Our 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Thessalonians 5 make it very clear that while prophetic words are very real, they're very possible, and God chooses to speak to people that way, that those words must be weighed within a local church to figure out if somebody's speaking the word of God or if they're just saying something that's coming into their mind. Why is this important? This is important because when somebody says, thus saith the Lord and God has not spoken, you're painting a poor picture of who God is and you're also leading people astray. Now, as I said a moment ago, because of the internet and social media, there are a lot of people who claim to be prophets that they're uttering nothing but what is coming out of their own mind and so we have to have some spiritual discernment. Now, I want you to check this out. Jeremiah, because the people were listening in exile to these false prophets, they almost missed God's plan for their life. And there are many people who are missing God's plan today because they're listening to the wrong voices in their life and they're allowing them to shape their image. A very, ex- very, very easy example this was about five years ago. There was a... There was a the gentleman who has a rather large ministry and I, was, I believe is in the Midwest somewhere, and he has been predicting for about three decades that Jesus is gonna come back and he he picks a date. I believe his his name was uh, Chapman. And anyways, he had picked a date, and he'd say, you know, Jesus is coming back in, you know, 1989. Well, then, you know, he told everybody, you got to sell all your stuff, you know, and it's, gonna, it's it. It's not going to happen. Well, 1989 rolled around, nothing happened. Well, he said, well, I missed it. It was going to be in 2002, and then it rolled around again. And then about four or five years ago, he, he did the same thing again. He said, hey, Jesus is coming back, you know, on November 1st. 2015 or whatever, and people were listening to him, and they were selling their possessions, their goods. I mean, they were homeless and destitute and broke when it was all said and done because they were listening to a guy who was saying, thus saith the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. Now, that's an extreme example. But it is something that is really that we need to watch in our own life. So the question is, and who do I know who to listen to? And here's a short answer that can help you. Who are these people accountable to? If I'm sitting in my basement and I put up a YouTube video saying, thus saith the Lord, I'm not accountable to a local church. I'm not accountable to anybody else. You need to look at who these people are accountable to. Now, these are five points of involvement within this passage. And there are five things that I think every single one of us need to remember. While living in Babylon, we have to use the skills that God has given us to shine the gospel. We need to be fruitful citizens to society. We need to be making our families a priority. We need to be praying for this county, and we need to have spiritual discernment. When we do that, God has a plan and a purpose that can work through our church and you as individuals to make a difference. You see, the famous verse in this passage that we have not talked about is chapter number he, excuse me, verse number 11. He, very famous, God says, for I have plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to bring you a hope and a future. And we like that verse as we should because it is a true verse. God has plans and purposes for you and for me. Not to harm us, but to bring us good. But that plan is, isn't a snap of the finger that instantly happens. It has to be worked out through a process. And what is that process? It's the five things that we just talked about this morning. That, that blessing, that plan that God has, gets worked out in our lives when we use the deposit that he's given us for the benefit of the kingdom that plan is worked out through us when we're fruitful in society. That plan is worked out through us when we make our family a priority. That plan, it works out through us when we pray for the city. That plan works through us when we walk out in spiritual discernment. Now what's interesting about that blessing is that blessing that God's saying, the plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in a future, really resembles the, the promise that God gave people, for they ever even got to the promised land to begin with. And what that shows is that God's promises are not limited to a geographical location. The promises that God has for us is rooted in who he is. And this is why Jeremiah told the people to pursue the Lord where he's at. God knew that in 70 years that he was going to come visit them. But in the meantime, they had to be obedient. Now, the linchpin is verse 12 and 13. I want to read it to you again then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place that I sent you from into exile. Church, we have to seek the Lord with our own hearts. If any of this stuff I talked about is going to happen, the linchpin was in those two verses. These things only happen when we seek the Lord with our own hearts. What are we seeking with our life? What are we seeking? We want all these things that we talked about. We want the blessing. We want the promises. We want God to work through us in our gifts, and we want God in our family, and we want God in our cities, and our workplace. But what are we seeking to make that happen? That's why we've been so intentional this year by encouraging you to center your life on a few things. We center our life on the Word, we center our life on prayer, we center our life in community. That is us seeking the Lord and His plan and His purpose for our life. And when we do that, then everything else that we talked about can come our way. When we're spiritually healthy, then we can shine the light, then we can be fruitful citizens, then our families will be a priority, then we know how to pray for our county, and then we have spiritual discernment. The question is simply this, are you going to seek the Lord?